We're going to dive right into our subject today as we continue our series in the Reformation and the doctrines of the Reformation that changed the world and continue to change the world to this day. Last week, we did sola scriptura, okay, that uh, it is scripture alone that uh, is the final and highest authority in the church. Now, I'm going to pause for a moment because all of a sudden I have this light right in my eye. Maybe, Eric, you could figure out what that is. Thank you. There we go. That was better. Uh, Some kind of a light therapy for colds. Don't worry about it. Uh, But uh, uh, so in the medieval church in the 16th century, that was the key battleground was who is the final authority? Is the church over the scriptures? Is the scripture over the church? Do they kind of have a co-authority? And the reformers pounded home that scripture is the final authority. It is God's word over man's word that must rule the day. Today we get into sola scriptura, or if you're into the Latin, sola gratia. And uh, if last week was what is the final authority, this week is how are we saved in, in the first place? How are we saved? Is it something that we do? Is it something that God does? Is it the gospel plus a little something that we sort of mingle in there? Or is it by grace and by grace alone? And the reason this is such a critical question is that, you know, you could, you could potentially get sola scriptura wrong and still go to heaven. You get the nature of the gospel wrong. We're talking eternity in hell without the possibility of parole. So this is a critical, critical question, and frankly, it's one, if you're a living soul today, what we're talking about is critical for your eternity and mine as well. How are we saved? What is the real gospel? And so the stakes are incredibly high because they last forever and ever. And and this is the sad reality for the average person in Western Europe in the 16th century. There, There was one church in town. And uh, so if you, if you were spiritually interested or inclined, you would go to that one church. You would hear a Bible read in Latin, a language that you didn't understand. The only person that you knew that you felt like you could trust to tell you the truth was the priest of that local church. And you did not have a Bible in your own language. What did you, what did you, what did you, what could you know? And especially at that time, what they were being told was, do your best. Work harder do better, and hope in the end, you find yourself in heaven. Now imagine the despair of the average person, because inherent in that teaching was what question that everybody laid on their bed and thought. How do I know if I have done enough? How do I know if I have been good enough? Maybe I'm gonna go to heaven, maybe I'm not. And those people like us, We long to know that we are forgiven of our sins from God. We long to know that death that is most certainly coming to us, that when we die, that we are going to go to be with the Lord, that we are going to live forever. And honestly, let's let's just be honest, we desperately want to know that we're not going to wake up in hell. We want to know we're not going to wake up in hell. In that day... Death was more in people's face than it is today, I think. 
because there were, you know, the average, the average lifespan was so much shorter back then. They didn't have hospitals like we do. They didn't have, you know, you couldn't hope that, um, you know, my daughter Madeline probably would not be alive if we lived in the 16th century. Children died, adults died, the plague. You know about the plague in Europe, the plague would just come in and wipe out a whole village. And on top of that, you had all the geopolitical stuff that was going on, and in Western Europe, there were armies on all sides, and war was a real thing. You never knew when all of a sudden here's an army, and they come, and they, they kill the men, they rape the women, and that's the life in the Western Europe. So with death uh, as a daily reality on all sides, <clears throat> the question was even more in their hearts, what happens to me when I die? Because this could be my week. I don't know how long I'm going to live. And again, the church's answer was, work harder, try harder, do better, and maybe in the end, you'll be justified before God. And of course, the problem with that is how do you know? How can you know? And this is one reason I think the indulgences were so popular, because an indulgence was the church saying, you're forgiven. You pay them a little money, you have a piece of paper, it was a tangible, tactile proof to your heart that I'm good with God. Look God, I got my certificate. And people bought them like hotcakes. A certificate of forgiveness. And now we of course know that this was bogus, but when you don't have anything else, bogus will do, right? Bogus will do. And God wants us to have assurance of our salvation. He wants us to know that we are under his love as long as our assurance is in the right place. And that brings us to our text today, which is Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. If you would turn there, Ephesians 2, 8 and 9. I'm going to begin, though, in verse 1. Ephesians 2, verse 1. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. All right, there's our text. We're talking about grace today, and I want to give you a definition so that you, when I say the word grace, you know what I'm meaning, okay? Here's a very easy definition of grace. Unmerited favor from God. Unmerited favor from God. A grace that I have no entitlement for, I have no expectation for, that God is under no obligation to grant to me. It is unmerited favor. And what Ephesians 2 brings us to immediately is that that this is a, before you understand grace, you have to understand race. In other words, the human race. What is the condition of the human race? And he begins in verse 1, you are dead in the trespasses and sins. Notice the language here. Sons of disobedience, by nature, children of wrath. 
Now, who is Paul talking about here? Is he talking about the 'er ne'er-do-wells of society? Is he talking about the criminals? Is he talking about the bullies on the playgrounds of life? No, he is talking about every single one of us. That the human race, every single person, is dead spiritually in their sins. That every single person is by nature sinful. That we are under the wrath of God. We're all dead, okay? We're all dead. And understanding that as the starting point is one of the ways that we avoid some of the heresies down through the church. We're not, you know, we're not on life support. We're not, you know, sick. We are dead in our trespasses. Now, this is the opposite of where our society comes from, and probably if your children are in schooling uh, locally that they're hearing, that uh, the, the basic starting point in our society is that people are, are good. They're flawed. They're not what they could be, but they're basically good. And that with the right nurturing and the right educational opportunities and the right access to financial resources, every single person that you see on the street is a, it has incredible potential to be somebody really, really wonderful. No, that's not where the Bible starts. The Bible doesn't start that we're basically good. The Bible starts that we are, ever since the fall, we are as a human race, dead spiritually, that we are under the wrath of God. We're not good people who need nurturing. We are by nature rebels against God. Our basic nature is towards things that are immoral, things that are violent, things that are depraved. So that when we lie or steal, sometimes people try to get out of it. They'll say, well, I just wasn't being myself. No, actually, that was you. That was the real you. The real you when you said that or did that. That is our nature. Now, that doesn't mean that we don't, you know, we are made in the image of God. We have a moral compass. We have a conscience. We have a, a, a basic moral framework. But that basic moral framework condemns us and shows us to be sinful. So we have a massive problem. If you stopped right there, you'd think, what? Like, we're all going to hell? We're all going to hell because we are, we are objects of the wrath of God. Now, here is where uh, Paul develops this uh, in Romans, and here's how he describes our nature. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. All have turned aside, together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. Not even one. You might be sitting here right now thinking, you know what? That's true for most of the people I know, but I believe I'm the exception to the rule. No, not even one. The, the most moral good person by human standards that is in this room right now is by God's definition and moral standard a sinner, an object of wrath. So sola grace drives us, first of all, to our depravity and our desperation from God's grace. And this is one reason that many people don't like it. And maybe you're here right now, you're not liking this. You want to believe that there's something good in you, that God decided to save you because he saw something good in you and that there was a potential in you or something like that. No, no. We've all become worthless. We are idolaters. 
We're immoral. We're sinners. Here is Isaiah 64, verse 6. We've all become like one who is unclean, and all our righteous deeds are like a polluted garment. The old King James are like filthy rags. You might say, hey, I think what you're saying is true. That's the way I used to be. But man, I've really been trying to sort of toe the line. Like I'm looking for old ladies to walk across the street. I've increased my giving to charitable causes. I'm trying to say good words, not angry words. I'm trying to do things that would sort of gussy myself up before God. I'm I'm trying to toe the line. Well, the Bible says, hey, that's great. That's great. I want to encourage everybody here we should strive for goodness. But even those things that we do, that are good, are tainted by sin, like a, like a polluted rag. If you've ever had a, a rag that's got clay or oil or something on it, right? You can try to clean yourself up. You know, I, I'm dirty, I'm gonna clean myself up. But if the rag is dirty, what's getting all over you, okay? And everything we do has dirt on it, has dirt on it. And so none of it merits favor with God, none of it makes us clean before him. Titus 3, 5, not by works of righteousness that we have done, but according to his mercy, he saved us. And that's where Paul goes now in Ephesians 2. He doesn't end with our depravity. That's the starting point. Listen, verse 4, but God, being rich in mercy, because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. Hear that? By gratia, you have been saved. And raised up with him and seated us with him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace, you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not a result of works, so that no one can boast. Did you hear that repetition? Verse five, by grace you have been saved. Verse eight, for by grace you have been saved. And so we have to ask the question, grace, okay, like whose grace? Whose grace are we talking about here? Is it, is it somehow my grace, like I've done good things and so I have grace now that saves me? No, clearly this is not your own doing. Did you see that? Not your own doing, not your own doing. It is a work of God on our behalf. It is his mercy, verse four, being rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. It was the mercy of God that motivated this kindness from God. And if if you miss that, you're into, into sort of like grace plus land. If you think there was something about you or your family or who you are, or your achievements, whether those are moral, spiritual, financial, whatever it is, somehow, God, I did something. You are not believing in salvation by grace. There is grace plus you a little bit in there. And the answer of the Bible is that if there is a little bit of us in there, then it is not the grace of God that saves us. It is not sola grace. It's grace plus, grace plus you a little bit, somehow in there. And this was, of course, the issue of the Reformation. 
And frankly, it remains the issue to this day. Are we saved by grace alone, or are we saved by a little something that we do as well? And that's where verses 8 and 9 answer that. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God so that no one can boast. I just want to say that. Not your own doing. Not your own doing. Not your own doing. Not your own doing. It is a gift. It is the gift of God. Grace. The story is told that in in, uh, Oxford there was a a conference going on on comparative religions and they were comparing the religions of the world. Well, it was just like a, a panel discussion, some kind of breakout workshop or something. Well, C.S. Lewis happened to walk into the room and he said, what are you all debating? And they said, we're debating what is Christianity's unique contribution to the religions of the world? And he said, oh, that's easy. Grace. Every religion of the world has aspects of what Christianity teaches and provides. Incarnation, resurrection, atonement even. But the one thing that no other religion has is grace from the Almighty. Every other religion requires you to do something, some little something that somehow increases your stature spiritually before God, something that inclines the gods to want to help you and save you, but not Christianity. And how do we know that? Because Paul says it is the gift of God. The gift of God. There are so many words here that Paul could have used if he wanted to sort of allow for something that we do. He could have said the provision of God, the opportunity of God, the cracked door of God. In fact, almost anything that he would have said would have allowed for us to have some little role in it except the word that he did use which is gift. In order for something to be a gift, you can't do anything for it. Otherwise, it is a wage. It is something that you've earned. It's something that you have coming to you. But a gift is something that you receive. It eliminates anything being done by the receiver. It is the gift of God. And notice that the grace of God muzzles the boastings of men so that man cannot boast. If there was something that you and I did, something that even inherent within us that inclined God to save us or was the trip lever for God going, okay, I'm going to save you now, we would have something to boast about. There would be something that we could glory in. There would be something that we could take credit for. There would be something that in in heaven forever we'd be like, yeah, well, you know, Jesus did die for our sins, but I actually had a little part in it as well. Just a little something that I can boast in, a little something that I can take glory in, taking it from the glory of Christ. Grace alone says that salvation is totally from God, from first to last. Or to say it this way, if we end up in hell, it's our fault. 
If we end up in heaven, it's God's fault. If we end up in hell, it's our fault. If we end up in heaven, it's God's fault. Now in the DeWitt house right now, currently, our favorite game that we are playing is hide and seek. So I have the two-year-old, aforementioned two-year-old. I also have a four-year-old. And uh, this is great fun. And we, uh, not every night, but almost every night we play hide and seek. And so here's how it goes. So I'll tell them, you go back to the garage door and you count to 10 and daddy's going to go hide. So I'll go and hide and they're like, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, ten. And I'm diving under a blanket or something and, um, and they come and they, they look for me. Well, they're not really great lookers, honestly. And so I'll occasionally you know, cough or something to indicate where I'm at after they've looked for a while. I wanted to earn it, right? So, and then we trade, and now it's their turn to hide. Now, what's so hilarious about this is that it doesn't matter how many nights in the week that we do this or how many times in a single night that we do it, they always hide in the same spot. (laughs) They always hide under the ottoman. And I'll encourage them, I'll say, don't hide in the same place, hide somewhere different. I'll go and count, where are they? Under the ottoman. (laughs) And from the moment I say, ready or not, here I come, I hear them making noises. (laughs) Or even saying this, we're under here! (laughs) We're over here! Now, why do they do that? Because they very much want to be found. They're much more in the, uh, the seeking side than the hiding side of hide and seek. They want to be found. And liberal theology and errant theology says that we are like my daughters under the Ottoman, that we very much want to be found, that we are doing things that help God in some way, find us and save us. We do something to assist God. Yes, God saves, you'll hear that. This is the danger in it, folks, I'm just telling you. Here's the danger. Yes, God saves, it sounds right. But there in the mix of it somehow is something that we do. Biblical theology says there is none that seek after God. No, not one. We aren't hiding and hoping to be found by God. We're not coughing and making noises under the ottoman. We are dead. We are spiritually dead. We are like Adam and Eve hiding in the bushes, not hoping that God will find us, but hoping desperately that he will not. Biblical theology is that God's searching for us is purely an act of his mercy. Not because we're great people or good in any way. It is his mercy. His finding us is completely his doing. His provision for us is Christ. And what role did we have in that? Nothing. Unless you want to count our sins. There will not be anybody in heaven who will say, 
Look what I did. The testimony of those that are in heaven will be, look what he did. Look what he did on the cross. Worthy is the lamb to receive glory and honor, power and praise. There will be no glorifying of man in heaven, and there is no glorifying of man in the gospel. It is all the glory of God. All praise be to him. So what does sola grace mean? It means two things. First of all, we are saved entirely by God. Entirely by God. Here's Romans 3.23, familiar passage. For all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. It goes on in verse 24. And are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Now next week is justification by faith. The hallmark of the Reformation is justification by faith. But notice here that Paul says that we are justified by his grace. Now what is the difference? We're gonna discover next week that faith is the means by which God applies the righteousness of Christ to us and declares us to be holy. It is a gift. Faith is a gift. The, 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 the belief that we have in God is a gift that God grants to us. But here it says that we are justified by his grace. And what that means is, is that God, in the act of justifying us, that God is the giver and we are the receivers of this. We are on the receiving end of this. And this is what keeps grace from being some sort of little sentimental Hallmark card. The grace of God is not a nicety. It's not a sort of soft and cuddly sort of term. Especially when you realize, how did God extend grace to us? And this is where a bloody cross has to be understood. And, and Abraham, I'll tell you this. I honestly, when I saw that one picture, you put that one picture up of a girl with facial, like she'd been maybe acid thrown on her or something like that. And then an, another young woman, dead. And I had, my first inclination was to say, I'm gonna go to Abraham and I'm gonna tell him, hey, you know what, Let's, it's a little, that's a little rough for a Sunday morning crowd here in middle America. Why don't we take that out? But then I thought to myself, this is what the stakes really are. And for all of our Sunday dress and sort of social graces and everything sort of nice, the real essence of the gospel and gospel ministry is not clean and nice. When we think about the grace of God, we go to that cross, and it is not a nice scene. It is a bloody scene. It is sweat and grime and screams and pain. That's what the cross is, and that's what the grace of God is. As Carl Truman said, sin is violent, lethal rebellion against God, and biblical grace is God's violent, raw, and bloody response. 
And Jesus' blood brings us to the grace of God, and we see in that price, the price that was required for God's holiness to be satisfied and for his grace to be applied to us, and there's just nothing nice about it. There's nothing sort of sweet and cuddly, and it's just, it's gross. It's appalling. It's crude. But that's what it took for our sins to be paid for. And that is the grace of God. So what does sola grace mean? We are saved entirely by God, not us, by God. And secondly, and this is more of the uh, ongoing ministry of God's grace, is that we remain saved by God's grace. Too many people think I'm saved by the grace of God, but now I stay saved by earning it and working at it and showing myself to be a Christian. This is really was Martin Luther, frankly, as he tried desperately to show himself, assure himself that he had right standing before God. Here's Romans 5.2. Through him we also have obtained access by faith into this grace in which we stand, and we rejoice in hope of the glory of God. You know, I told you in the medieval, medieval church, how did, anybody, how did anybody have assurance of salvation? They didn't. They didn't. The only way that they knew that they were saved or not is when they opened their eyes in eternity. How can I know if I've done enough, worked hard enough? The church said, you'll know if in the end you discover that you're justified. And Luther was terrified of dying because he did not know if he had worked hard enough, been morally good enough. But then he preaches through Romans and he preaches through Galatians and he discovers in the text of scripture that salvation is of God from first to last. He discovers there that he is saved apart from anything that he did, which means that assurance of salvation is not dependent upon performance. It is dependent wholly on the mercy of God and the reliability of the scriptures that what they say about how we can be saved is true, sola scriptura. And now we're right back to that doctrine of the reliability and the authority of God's word. I enter salvation by his grace. I remain in salvation by his grace. And I am forever in eternity in his grace. It is God's grace from her first to last. Listen to the, the Puritan pastor Richard Baxter. What an astonishing thought it will be to think of the immeasurable difference between our deservings and our receivings. <coughs> between the state we should have been in and the state we are in, what depths of gratitude will we feel to look down upon hell and think, Yonder is the place that sin would have brought me. But this is the place that Christ has brought me. And I don't know if we'll be able to do that in heaven, but just imagine with me for a moment that we can. To stand on the precipice of, of heaven and to gaze somehow down into 
a place of torment and a place of punishment, a place absent from God, absent of the beauty. No, nothing that you want and crave is found in hell. There is none of that. And if, if somehow you can look into that space and place and possibly to see family members and friends you went to college with and people just like you and to realize there but by the grace of God go I. To realize if it was not God's mercy to me that that would be what I would have forever. And then to look around and to realize not only am I not in the worst place, I find myself in the best place. I find myself forever with God, forever under his grace and kindness and mercy as he lavishes forever upon us his eternal love. That gap between what we should have got and what we get will remind us forever. Sola gratia, sola grace, there but by the grace of God. Go I. Amen. And I wonder today if you know that heaven is yours. Do you know? The Lord wants you to know. He wants you to see in Christ his grace, his mercy, to hear in the words of Jesus himself, he that believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. To put your trust not in yourself, not in your doings, not in your righteous acts, not in your religion, but to put your trust in Christ and in him alone. For therein lies salvation for all who will believe. So why not just believe right now? Why not just believe right now? Make that faith commitment to the Lord. Receive his grace. He wants to give it to you. He wants to find you. And maybe today he will.